Welcome to the 42 to Doomsday podcast, the podcast that continues to deny the fact that Series 10 is currently screening on your telly. I'm Rob. I'm Richard. I'm Mark. And I'm Dave. And as you've just heard, once again, we have on the show Richard and Dave. Thank you, Dave, for hosting us once again. My pleasure. How have you been? Uh, really good. There's a lot of good stuff going on. The Goodies podcast is going well. Our Doctor Who show reviews are going well, if you don't mind the plug. And my football team's winning for a change, so life's good. Very good, Richard. Well, actually, our football team also had a great win yesterday. We did the the uh, the city of churches or the town of <laughs> taken down by our team. <laughs> okay. How are you, Richard? Our football team <coughs> also had a great win. We did yesterday. Other than that, yes, Dave said the Goodies podcast is going quite well. We've recorded a couple of episodes earlier today. That that was a bit of an interesting undertaking. <laughs> well, we got to talk about John Pertwee. Yes, we did get to talk about John Pertwee for a Doctor Who link. At length. But it's a bit of a gear change now, isn't it? It is. Mark, how's your football team going? Uh, we've lost the last two games, but while there's life, there's hope. And Dustin Martin doesn't do a hamstring. No, exactly. Yes. He really is the only person holding that team together, isn't he? Uh, Jack Rewalt kicked a few uh, bad he goals did, yesterday. Yeah. He did, yeah. I mean, he lost by five points yesterday. Game of things, it's not like yeah, but Lions our, versus... Our team's won. Anyway, how are you, Dave? Yeah, in another more correct way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dave, you have some uh, things to talk about. Well, I just wanted to give you a bit of feedback and make a couple of comments on your past couple of episodes, which I've really enjoyed. Now, while Richard's here, I can confirm that, yes, I have finished Dalek Attack. And, yes, I did do it without using the cheats. <laughs> but, and, and your thoughts on the game? Uh, look, when I, was, when I was 13 and actually into computer games, it was, oh, yeah, a lot of fun. You're right, there's not a lot in it that's thematically about Doctor Who, but then, let's face it, the Doctor Who computer game that probably is most about Doctor Who is the um, Anthony Ailey one, and that's just boring because it doesn't really translate. But... It's got stuff like the Robermen and the movie Daleks and all these little references that clearly show that it's a fan. And it's one of, I think, literally five computer games ever I've finished. Which negates my next question, which was, have you played any of the other Doctor Who ones? Uh, no, I played that, TIE Fighter, X-Wing, Lost Vikings, and Prince of Persia 2. That's the limit of my computer game experience. What about you, Rob? Are you a gamer at any point? I had a friend who had a Commodore 64, so I was frequently around his place. He was just up the road. Um, I had an Apple IIe. Back in yep. the mid-80s, my grandfather bought it for me ostensibly for school, but it turned into a... He might apply choplifter, mate. <laughs> yeah, probably did. The Atari 2600. Yep. Bashed the crap out of that during the 80s. And I did buy an Xbox many, many years ago, but I'm not a big games player. I just don't... I'm time poor, basically. But I do enjoy the idea of playing games, for sure. For sure. Now, that was a very niche podcast. So I've got one question, guys. Exactly what is a BBC Micro? What is a BBC Micro? As the name suggests, it was the BBC's entry into the home computing market. Literally, is BBC as in the BBC? Yes, as, yeah, absolutely. As yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Corporation. Yes, it is their computer. It wasn't actually designed by them. It was designed by Acorn. That's right, yeah. Uh, and it was sold under the BBC brand. Hmm. Can I just interject? What is the public broadcaster doing investing in home computing? That was their next big leap forward as part of their cultural remit or whatever is because they ran a series of information programs and, and educational programs on the computer and how you could program the computer and how, what computer could do for you mm. and how computers were integrating into our modern lives. Wouldn't that have been best served by the publicly funded uh, educational system? They ran a series and, and it was released to tie in. There was about a 26, 30 episode series on home computing. It was, it was the BBC presenter and, and a... Computer dude. There's actually a documentary or docudrama. It's called Micromen. Basically, the BBC did a tender out to to get this computer built. Acorn and Sinclair 
put in for bids. Uh, Acorn clearly won it. If you want any more information, there's a great docudrama called Micro Men, which has got uh, Martin Freeman in it and Alexander Armstrong, I think. I generally didn't know that it was linked to the BBC, as in the yeah, BBC. Yeah. So no, yeah, they, they, didn't. they put out a series of educational programs that were around how to use a computer and what computers could do in your modern life. Uh, and went with that and there was a series also there was a magazine range I think that went I think with it, was, it as yeah, well yeah. I think also mm. oh, interesting answer your question it does and the other thing I just wanted to mention was I really enjoyed your monsters that needed to be brought back episode oh thanks last week yeah, it was but good. that you missed a couple that I thought needed to be mentioned go for it so first of all I actually had Coquillion <laughs> <laughs> or Cocky Licken <laughs> which, which I, at first I thought was a bit of a gag but then I thought no you could you could do the whole prequel to the rescue where the either the doctor's visit or where the ship first come on the rest it's, it's in the prequel. book it's in the book okay yeah uh, but in, in more all seriousness the cheetah people can you imagine how good the, the cheetah people would be now with modern costumes yes though we do sort of shake our head at the modern Silurians don't we uh, we do a bit I, I was going to say I actually thought you chaps might have missed a trick by not having the Rutans in there they've only ever been in one story and they've been tangentially mentioned, I think, in a couple others, but we only ever see them on screen once. That's true. That's true. They were they're in shakedown. And, and, and let's face it, they've screwed up the Sontaran, so they need a... The, why, not, why not go to the other side? Get a, get a comedy rooting in. That's right. Oh. Caroline Ford could come back and reprise her role. From shakedown. With Bradley. <laughs> <laughs> Just to wind it back 40 seconds, you're actually right, Dave. I think the Cheetah people would be a good monster... Not a monster, an alien species to bring back. I think, well, because there's, a, there's an opportunity yeah. there to build up a society. Okay. Well, Ryan and Munro is writing for the upcoming episode, so you never know. They could be making an appearance. You do know that Series 10 talk is verboten. Oh, right? it's right. Let's just keep moving on. Let's just keep moving yes. on. All right. I think, Mark, you just became Elaine then. Yes, I'm going to sleep well tonight. <laughs> yes, we're Series 10 deniers. <laughs> <laughs> Speak for yourselves. I've been enjoying it. And podcasting about and it. And podcasting about it. Check it out, Doctor Who Show. Any more monsters, Dave, you didn't like? You didn't like? <laughs> They've name-checked the Dravens in the new series. We could bring them back. I would like to see the Shalonians done, brought in from the new adventures. Talking about doing them. There that. was talk about doing them, and they have been name-checked, but yeah. we haven't seen them. That's, that could be pretty cool. Was Planet of the Dead supposed to have them in in an earlier draft? That sounds right, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I did get a tweet, actually, from Endless Mike, who was uh, commentating about that uh, particular podcast, and said, Love the number one picks and the idea of more watery menaces, but no Candyman. I am saddened. I liked the Candyman. But I think he was a bit of a one-off. Maybe the seaweed monster from Fury from the Deep needs to come back just in time for the returned episodes. May 27, people. <laughs> Allegedly. Allegedly. Here we go again. Because we're not talking about Series 10, it seems like, ever... We're... It's only been four weeks. <laughs> We're shaking. (laughs) (laughs) Our methadone hasn't kicked in yet. No, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who continuity. How uh, fans have approached it and how the production teams have approached it, used it and abused it. Doctor Who continuity has long been a point of contention amongst fans of the show. Just as a starter, what is continuity, fellas, and uh, why does it matter and indeed should it matter? To use the Terence Dix definition... Continuity is what he could remember of his predecessor's work and what his successors could remember of his. So it's largely from the production side an ad hoc thing? Well, it is. I mean, Doctor Who's never really had, particularly in the classic series, there's no hard and fast series Bible or rules for Doctor Who. I mean, they're very much just making the show up as they go along. Now, And it's really... I think the thing is, you said contention for fans. 
And it really is, I think, only fans who care about that sort of thing. I think the production up has kept a record in terms of planets and story settings. But oh, you're right, look, there was no there was no detailed synopsis on terms of no, this would happen in the rest I mean, of the like st- You obviously have the story basic, as in the Doctor comes from Gallifrey, he has two hearts, these are the names of his previous companions, etc. But, but, but as, we, as we'll discuss, even that was stuff that was written later on. I mean, the two hearts thing is one that is, is eventuated, I think, in Spearhead from Space. Yes, it is. It's interesting, I think, right at the outset, to compare Doctor Who with other series. If you go to one extreme, you get something like Babylon 5, where before even the first episode is written, uh, J. Michael Straczynski has done an entire Bible. He's worked out what the alien races were, the whole history of Earth up until Babylon 5, who the characters are, how far away from each other the various planets are, you know, all that sort of level of detail so that everything slots in exactly and he can explain everything. At the other extreme, you have something like Red Dwarf, where Rob Grant and Doug Naylor have openly said, if it's a choice between a funny line and getting the continuity right, we go for the funny line. Mm. So if you've got two good jokes in different series about Lister having his appendix removed, well, who cares that he's had his appendix removed twice? You just rem- you know you just removed uh, and do the and joke. Let's face it, the bulk of the audience probably don't remember the joke you made two seasons earlier anyway. No, but to take us to the next point about fans caring, even in that circumstance in Red Dwarf where they've said, look, we don't care about continuity... Fans have retconned it mm. to say that when Lister was reconstituted by the DNA machine, that's how he got a new appendix. Mm. So you can't have it out twice. So that shows the, the, the levels that fans will go to to create their own continuity, even in a series where the creators openly don't care. Now that impulse to put everything in a box and label it, that's purely a fan construct. Why do you think fans are like that? I guess it shows the level of investment that you've made in the series that you want to do that sort of thing. And I guess it is, yeah, you want order. You want mm. to find this story should really, you should be able to draw a coherent narrative through this story. But why should you need to draw a coherent narrative? Doctor Who is, I mean, in the classic series at least, for a lot of its run is, yes, it's got the same lead characters and it has the TARDIS, but it is adventure to adventure to adventure. Well, the, the answer to that is actually, Rob, I don't think you do need to. Mm. And look... I think, like most of us, and probably like many people listening, we all went through that period where we were very hardcore fans, and if somebody called the lead character Doctor Who, you go, no, he's the Doctor. Although the series itself called him Doctor Who, well, and, and that's right. there in the closing credits. So. And, that, and that's right, whereas now, I, I don't care, and sometimes it's easier just to talk, say Doctor Who, because then everyone at least knows who you're talking about. Yes. You could get very worked up about whether it's time and relative dimension in space, or time and relative dimensions in space. And even more worked up about the fact that in the series you're not talking about, Peter Capaldi does go back to dimension mm. in the singular. Does that change my enjoyment of any episode? No. Obviously, as fans, you go through a period where it, you've really deeply invested in it, and you, I suppose your appreciation is deepened for it because you sense that there is a, a, a story to it, that there is an ongoing narrative that you can sort of plug yourself into and gain a deeper enjoyment from it just other than just simply watching it. The issue with Doctor Who... I don't think you can really draw in some ways a coherent narrative for Doctor Who because, as you say, you go from adventure to adventure to adventure. Now, given you can travel anywhere in time and space, the rules change every four weeks, or every week, every four weeks, every six weeks, whatever. Um, So you get a completely new set of characters, you get a completely new world, you get a completely new set of rules, and the show just works to that. Unlike, say, a series like Babylon 5, was written by a fan for other fans to obsess over. 
Yes. Um, and one of the consistent criticisms that was made about Babylon 5 was that if you didn't come in right on day one, Babylon 5 was a very difficult series to get into halfway through because you were expected to know quite a bit of backstory to, to really enjoy the episodes that were being shown now. Mm. Um, so, yes, yes, I, I did go through that thing. And yes, there are always things where you try and work Doctor Who into a coherent narrative. But I, I actually lean towards the thing. I think in some ways it, it, it's impossible. Being a Black 7 fan, one of the probably most interesting things about being a Black 7 fan, and, and this is totally converse, is actually trying to put Black 7 into a coherent narrative because it doesn't have any, really. I mean, yes, there are some broad arcs and there are some broad structures to the series, but Black 7 really doesn't have a defined arc. And, and indeed, the, the showrunner or the script editor or whatever you want to call Chris Boucher he was actively against that, that sort of approach to the series because his stated thing was you should be able to show the episodes in any order except for the first one and the last one in each season. Although it's interesting, whilst he was against that sort of narrative continuity, he was very, very much one of the first to be big on technical continuity so that the terminology in Black yes. 7 is very, very um, correct in how the ship works, the way they measure stuff, you know, with spatials and all the rest of that. That is actually very consistent, incredibly consistent. Yes, including even down to the speeds of the ships. Yeah, ex exactly. So there, there is that technical continuity that Boucher is not a pioneer of, but one of the first of. Hmm. Uh, and that's something that Doctor Who really has struggled with mm. because the rules of you know, how different things work just go all over the place to, to the point that, dare I point it out, we can't even agree what year, half of the Purple year it takes place in. And there have been extensive fan theories about how you date that era. Yes. Yeah. I, again, I suppose, and before I actually dive into um, looking at continuity or how it's dealt with in a sort of you know chronological sense... Does the existence of continuity actually help or hinder the creative process? I was going to say, I would say if you are a slave to it, it would hinder you. I think you could make continuity references and maybe chuck in little things for fans. And we're seeing that probably in the series we're not talking about, and, and indeed some of the other earlier episodes, where we see just little mentions of things that a fan would go, ooh, actually. Whereas the casual viewer just washes straight over them and we keep going with the story. I think I'll probably save my comments on that for when we get to the 80s because I think that's where it becomes very, very important. All right, so we'll launch into a more chronological examination of how continuity has been handled or developed. Obviously, Doctor Who rolls around in 1963 and what we have is the Doctor who pro proclaims himself as being an alien, his granddaughter and the TARDIS, and that's all we have. Yeah, so continuity is incredibly easy in that first year or two because there, there is nothing to be con continuous about. Yeah. We know the absolute minimum about the Doctor. We know the absolute minimum about who Susan is. We know that his ship travels through time and space. It's called TARDIS. It stands for Time and Relative Dimension in Space. We know the lead characters are called Ian and Barbara. Beyond that, it's really just being made up as it goes along. So there is nothing to contradict anything. No. And, and, and even very early on... And look, I don't know whether we want to discuss the Daleks now or a bit later in a little standalone bit, but you can pretty much put all of Dalek history in the classic series into a workable narrative, with the exception of the first Dalek story, which just really doesn't fit in at all. And effectively, I think it gets almost sort of wiped and restarted again with Dalek Invasion of Earth. So that's interesting. So I'd actually said the story that, if we can quickly have a quick Dalek discussion, I'd actually said the story that really messes with the Dalek narrative actually is Destiny. Because you can just about reconcile Daleks with Genesis 
but it's destiny, I think, that probably turns it on its head. Uh, but th- then you take the um, House Stammers Walker approach that says that Genesis reset the whole of Dalek history. Yes. And that way you can fit destiny, resurrection, etc. in. And that's the only way you can do it, I agree. But, yeah, you can, you, you can get this narrative of you know, who the Daleks are and how they work and their empire, etc. None of it really fits with this idea that there's a couple of hundred of them stuck and can only travel on metal on Scaro. Hmm. So, very quickly, they go, well, look, we'll, we'll to use the Terran Sticks phrase, we'll fix that with a line and say they can now do that and that, that happens sort of, you know, in another part of time and space and just get on with telling Dalek Invasion of Earth. Okay. So there's an ad hoc approach to it, which really doesn't hinder its creativity, does it? They're just telling stories at this point in the series, right? Well, it doesn't because, as they said, there's no starting continuity and they don't really very rarely reference previous adventures. I mean, they never sit down and say, oh, remember that time we met Marco Polo? He was a great bloke, wasn't he? Mm. Um, or any of the previous adventures. I mean, yes, we encounter the Daleks again and we get the Trout near and we meet the Cybermen every three months or whatever, but there's no going backwards really at that point. And there is a sense that in this early phase of the series, it is one long adventure. I mean, episodes that end run into the next episode, effectively. Yeah, incredibly so. I actually, for some unknown reason, watched part of An Unearthly Child the other night, and I was amazed that they get to the end of that, they just escape from being locked up by cave people, run back to the TARDIS, they move the TARDIS, and then literally there's not, okay, we need a rest, let's have a meal, let's go to bed. It's, okay, well, before we go out and explore, we'll just sort of put a bit of dust off our clothes and, mm. and go there out, there out of the TARDIS in two minutes. Yes. Mm. So it, it is really quick. The same thing happens at Edge of Destruction. The mm. moment they touch down, they're out visiting Marco Polo. They land straight from there on to Marinus. Mm. There, there's no break at all. Yeah. It's interesting. I remember reading uh, an issue of InVision, and I think it's Anthony Brown, writes uh, about how if you look at the early Davison era all of it can be encapsulated in about three weeks of actual TV time yeah. of adventure time which is I mean from a creative standpoint that's very interesting the way they do that yeah, I hadn't really thought of it like that but you're right it almost is a return to that really that serialised mm. approach where it's just we just go from exciting exciting scenario to exciting scenario to exciting scenario which is why you can sort of understand why Tegan is wearing the same clothes for effectively three weeks but then if you assume that Nissa has a very long lifespan you could fit a thousand years between uh, Time Flight and Arc of Infinity and, and that's where Big Finish come in. <laughs> Big Finish is business plan, but let's let's leave <laughs> let's leave Big Finish to, to one side for the for actually for it was Virgin. I remember just uh, actually it was Virgin's plan as well because Virgin, when they sent out in the when they were taking unsolicited uh, story ideas or submissions, they actually sent a guide out for writers and for the missing adventures they actually plotted where they said these are the gaps in the stories and you can set stuff here you can't set them in between these ones and this is where we would accept a gap hmm. um, and that broke down the entire classic series like that moving forward is the appearance of the meddling monk one of the key moments in early Doctor Who history and continuity the fact that you now have uh, an, a member of the Doctor's species turn up means that there is a backstory there. It, it, it has to be because it clarifies for certain something of who the Doctor is, which is that he is an alien. There are others of his type. He does own a TARDIS. Because up until then, I think it's still not quite clear whether he's that or he's more the Peter Cushing type mm. character who's invented a TARDIS or whatever. You know, he hasn't built the machine himself. It's something that his species or his race have. Yeah. And, I mean, that's right. I mean, as you mentioned before about the Doctor having one heart, I mean, he could be just a human from the future. 
Yes. Until they layer on the fact that he's got two hearts. He appears to be a human anyway. It's sort of more advanced. Well, well, for example, in the wheel in space, when he has the full medical checkup, mm. at no point does Dr. Corwin say, oh, by the way, your friend's got two hearts. No, so, and there is that line, is it evil, I think, where the, the Daleks actually say your travels in, in time and space have made you more than human. Is there anything else to say about the Hartnell era in, in sort of how they approach continuity? Do they really use the storytelling in that to sort of build up a coherent... I think the one thing that we have to talk about in there is the way they approach history. And we we touched on this before in our discussions. I know, Richard, you're you're, you're quite a fan of this. Some fans have said that the way that they tackle the approach to history is contradictory. But I think it actually does work. And if you look at the way the Leftist Chaps podcast um, put out their theory (laughs) back in the anniversary year, they posit the theory, and I think it's a very good one, that it's not so much that the uh, continuity gets itself wrong but that the Doctor's view is itself evolving in that he genuinely believes and has been taught as a Time Lord, you can't change history, not one line. Mm. And that's the way that he approaches it. And then in the Romans, where his actions actually do nudge history in particular directions, he gets quite giddy and excited by this. He goes, oh, I can do this, and suddenly realises that, yes, he can change and influence time, and that changes his approach to it. How much of that's fan retcon, I don't know, probably most of it. But... Well, you can probably retcon the Doctor's move through a bit because in the early stuff I mean there's all the stuff about how he's you know how he's crusty and he's a bit unlikable and he's cantankerous or whatever he undergoes a bit of a change and and I know and I think it was uh, Tatwood the About Time books make the point that in the Censorites there's a scene there where the Doctor as hero is born because there's a scene there where he's cured their plague he's saved Ian's life and the Censorites actually say you can go if you want you've done everything we've asked you can leave and he does and he goes into the cave and he keeps investigating because it's the right thing to do so you sort of have this you can sort of retcon a a thing where initially he's not long left Gallifrey he doesn't really know what he's doing he then discovers that he's actually got skills and that that can help people and then the flow on effect then is eventually you wind up with something like Sylvester McCoy where he's actually trying to actively influence the outcome and, and steer history in the right course. And then, of course, you get to David Tennant's ego. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you can retcon the, the development of the Doctor in that, in that way, I think. So we move out of the Hartnell era where they're sort of laying the groundwork of a sort of history. There are Daleks, there are Cybermen. You know, the Doctor travels through time and, and has adventures and involves himself. We move into the Troughton era. Now, my sense of the Troughton era, um, and you've got some notes here, I think, Dave, is that we start to see the establishment of some timelines with regards to certain alien species. Is that a function of the fact that the Cybermen and the Daleks are appearing repeatedly? I think it's more to do with the fact that the writers are coming back in part, but I do think that there is a thread through the Troughton years of the establishment of a Doctor Who universe and timeline in the future because we do this get, get this idea that man goes and explores the moon and man has a weather weather station there and you know, the wheel in space sort of fits into that exploration and then by the seeds of death the moon's been used for transman and they're not using rockets and all, all that sort of thing so you do get this idea that you know in the early 21st century this is what man's doing in this sort of an order and the Cybermen then intersperse with that. The other interesting thing about the Cybermen is that this is an area where continuity becomes interesting because are the Cybermen changing costumes because we're meant to believe that in show or in universe the Cybermen are changing their appearance or are we actually meant as viewers just to assume the Cybermen all look the same every appearance it's just the costume sort of changed because the money's changed. I guess with the exception of the Cybermondasians in 10th Planet who are clearly from a different planet, 
is every Cyberman from Telos, from the Moonbase through to Silver Nemesis, actually meant to look the same? Or, as David Banks's continuity book points out, are they meant to be different evolutions and iterations of Cyberman? I think you could probably view have a more richer experience of viewing those those stories if you regard them as being slowly evolving or improving themselves, uh, and that's part of I suppose the, the 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 sort of the fan creativity there that if you you know you want to deepen your own viewing experience mm. you regard them as being either offshoots or improvements on their previous appearances and, and certainly David Banks in his excellent Cyberman book does draw that narrative where he says you know you've got the ones that want to be really hard you know hardcore orthodox Cybermen and they go off and they're the ones you see in the 60s that are really mechanical really robotic versus the sort of more primitive ones in Invasion which are the ones that stayed on Telos and then they sort of get defeated in the various Patreon shows and they go off and become the ones in Revenge that are struggling and then they find the guys from Tomb and they combine everything and become the really cool cyber neomorphs that you see in the 80s yep. like you can do it but did the show intend us to do that? No, well, clearly they, they didn't. They didn't. But, I mean, it's it, as fans, as viewers, like I said before, and as David Banks has done which, with his fantastic book, he's just created a, a, a history out of basically whole cloth, hasn't he? Mm. Mm. Yes. No, I was going to say, I mean, the thing with the costume is, well, I know uh, Sandra Reid had said when basically the reason for the Moonbase ones looking like they did was she suddenly got a heap more money um, and they were better when they realised they were going to bring them back because they were starting to have trouble with the Daleks by then when they realised they were going to bring them back they said well here's some more money to redesign the costume so she went beauty I can actually do these properly now yeah. um, and I think she went on record as saying Moonbase was probably how she wanted them to look all the way along I think to an extent but I think the key point that you, is what you've just made before Dave the fact that we've got returning production personnel we've got returning writers so they will bring their experiences from what they've written previously and build on that in, in stories like Moonbase and stories like Tomb of the Cybermen. But I think it also varies from writer to writer. So clearly um, Kip Keller and Jerry Davis have this idea of this futuristic universe they want to create and therefore a lot of their stories do fit. Um, you see the same with um, Lincoln and Halsman and their stories have an ongoing continuity that certainly is meant to be drawn together. Brian Hales, I think, doesn't have that and it's incredibly difficult to reconcile the timelines of the Ice Warriors and the Seeds of Death and indeed even the the, the Curse of Peladon later because once you say that the Nice Wars are from Mars you've either got to have them as our next door neighbours for a very long time or they're not really from Mars or they were at Mars and then they came back to Mars or you know what's going on in the Seeds of Death that means that um, you know they're suddenly becoming stuck in the Antarctic ice or the Arctic ice 3,000 years ago it, yeah. it would be interesting to know actually what his original idea for the story that the Seeds of Death was it Lords of the Red Planet I think was the story that Seeds of Death replaced. Not true. Be interesting to know what his ideas there were because Seeds of Death was a it was a last minute thing because he wrote an, he wrote a different Ice Warrior story. Mm. The production team, because season six was a bit of a dog's breakfast in terms of production, accepted it and then decided no, actually they didn't really like it and then told him to go away and write something else, which is when he came up with the Seeds okay. of Death. So it would actually be interesting to know what his original idea for for Lords of the Red Planet was. And if I could just make a really, really fan-wanky continuity point in there, you can actually reconcile all of what we see there with Kill the Moon, with this idea that mankind has, by seeds of death, stopped exploring, doesn't want to go anywhere. The year that's actually quoted in Kill the Moon exactly fits in with the timeline of seeds of death, and this idea that that is what inspires mankind to then go, no, we now need to push out and become, um, you know, this race of explorers again. So... 
it actually interesting, is interesting that you get a Capaldi story that ties in with continuity with a, a Troughton story. I would hazard that that is completely inadvertent, that uh, I don't think anyone was sitting down <laughs> thinking, well, if we turn the moon into a giant egg, that will just nicely link in with seeds. Of, no, Ian, you... Ian Levine wasn't sitting over my, Stephen Moffat's shoulder just going with <laughs> I got very excited about that, but I'm, I'm a big fan of that sort of no, that's future enough. history continuity. I was just going to say that, uh, I suppose from a show's internal continuity, it was used more as an aid memoir uh, for viewers. So in you know, Power of the Darks, for example, where the actors clearly changed, and to reinforce to the viewers that it's actually the same show, you know, they, they showed a, a very brief still of, of Hartnell, they name-checked a couple of previous stories. No mention of the Space Museum, though. Moonbase referenced Tenth Planet, Wheel in Space, You Know Our Ways... It was always to reinforce previous adventures where, let's go back to Faceless Ones, where basically part six of that story is the same date and time of when the War Machines was taken place yes. as well. But they didn't explicitly call it out until the novelisation years later. No, well, it also links comment. into the beginning of Evil, uh, Evil of Evil. the Dark. That's yes. right. There's just three adventures happening on the same day. Yeah. Even though at this point we haven't got anything like the future fan level of attention where we, people are archiving this and writing books about it, there are enough people tuning in every Saturday to know that the Doctor's met the Cybermen before. Correct. And it would be kind of ridiculous if the Cybermen at some point didn't say, hang on, we know that bloke. Yes, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so yeah. there is enough of a regular audience that they have to give nods to this stuff by this stage. And we see the ultimate expression of that in Earthshock where the Cybermen are gathered around their little viewing area and you just get a, a roll of, of the Doctor appearing in previous mm. episodes. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I mean, Jamie has to say, oh yes, I know the Ice Warriors, we met them a few months ago. Mm. I know the Brigadier, he's that bloke we met in London. And it would make sense to a, view, to a constant viewer for a character to say that yeah. because it would make sense that they would actually refer back to it. You would think... It would it'd be strange that Jamie didn't mention that. Exactly. Yeah. And I suppose as a constant uh, constant viewer, you get that little thrill of, of, of having That's that acknowledgement. Right. That reward, yeah. But it's not driving the narrative of that story. No, no. Yeah. We, we, unfortunately, as you said before, Dave, we see that more in the 80s. But before we get to the 80s, we have to go to the 70s. And before we get to the 70s, we have to get out of the Troughton era. Now, the Troughton era, in my view, establishes two very important things. The concept of regeneration, mm-hmm. which gives the which enables the series to last as long as it has, but it also introduces the Doctor's people. There's no mention of the home planet, of course, but the species is given a name, Time Lords. Now, for good or for ill, was the introduction of the Doctor's actual species a good idea or a bad idea, or is I, that too reductive? I, I think for dramatic purposes, it's a really good idea because how do you raise the stakes? in a big season finale and indeed an era finale well making the stakes so bad the Doctor needs the help of his own people that's a really big dramatic moment I think it's absolutely a valid decision now at this stage Doctor Who's been going for six years so for them to say well it's finally time to go to the Doctor's home planet is a very worthwhile decision they didn't know what that would lead to for the next 46 years no but it makes absolute sense at the time so in the moment that was a valid decision to do because as you say dramatically it works I suppose the ramifications of that though are how future production teams handle it and I suppose we'll be looking at that a little bit later Richard? Yeah. Well that's the thing as Dave said you don't really know they, they had no idea what would be done with it when you get into say the Pertwee era when the Time Lords are them um, are referenced every second week and, and it really becomes a bit old hat That I mean it does obviously allow 
them to send the doctor off on off-world missions when they suddenly realised the corner they've painted themselves into. But nobody in 1969 no, no, but that's would, the would know that no. what they were doing then would no. eventually lead to a really bad iteration of Gallifrey and the Ark of Infinity. Well, Malcolm Holt probably did, because he did say, well, that limits you to two stories. And I thought, by golly, Heath, what? <laughs> <laughs> but obviously, with the conclusion of the War Games is another reward I suppose for long term viewers where the, the cameos of the monsters are paraded out before the, the change happens so they drop back Jamie and uh, Zoe back to the original points in time when they met the Doctor so from a continuity point of view, inter- again that internal continuity of the show is rewarding those, kind of those viewers who actually remember actually remember remember the yeah. Highlanders and even if you hadn't it doesn't make it's not a bigger deal because you know enough of the backstory to say well actually here's a Highland it doesn't have to go back to you know, part four of the Highlanders mm. in particular, but yeah, it's quite nice. I think. And they go to the trouble of actually making Jamie look like he did in the Highlanders. Yeah. They get the same actress back from the wheel in space, yeah. so they actually have gone to the trouble of doing it well. Yeah, that's right. And there's a real sense, I suppose, um, that that could be the end of the series. That if you ended the series there, mm. with the Doctor being, you know, sent off to a mysterious exile, mm. that's your ending, basically, isn't it? Yeah, of the show. Yeah, that's it. And of course, that never happened. Otherwise, we probably wouldn't be here talking about it. <laughs> There'd be nothing left by the BBC anyway. No, no. no. Although, well, I suppose it nearly did happen at the end of the following year, but... That's true. So we move into the 70s. We, we bring colour, we bring Pertwee, we bring uh, Earthbound stories, which develop their own sort of continuity, their own internal coherency... And as you mentioned before, Richard, the Time Lords keep on getting referenced, it seems, every so often, basically because that's a story element. The Doctor has been set off on missions, isn't he? Well, he is. I mean, you go through the... I guess if you take a progression narrative, you go through the first season where he settles into unit and he starts doing some work on the TARDIS and he's trying to get the TARDIS going himself. So, of course, you very quickly suddenly have the, the TARDIS has to be able to go off-world again so they can actually do some different stuff. And, of course, because the TARDIS can't he can't pilot the TARDIS, of course you need an external force to move it. So of course, hence your Time Lord's coming. What I was going to say with the TARDIS, until you get to the Time Monster where the TARDIS just suddenly works for a couple of hours without any, without any explanation at all. The point that I was going to make about the Pertwee era is that you've probably got at this point the most stable production team over a five-year period that Doctor Who has, certainly in its classic run, arguably at any other time, with Barry Letts and Terence Dix, both of whom genuinely care about the series enough to have a sense of continuity and that manifests itself in a couple of ways as you've said you've got the Time Lords you see the development of characters across the course of the show so the Brigadier actively gets a backstory and actively gets aspects to his character you get the whole Mike Yates arc that comes into the last couple of years which is really good dramatically Mm. but you also see again this further extension of the building of the future history of the Earth and this Doctor Who universe and and I can remember even as a kid watching the Pervy years and, you know, I wasn't a fan, so to speak, at that stage. I was just a regular viewing child or young man or boy or whatever age I was. That, was that, that felt like a reward, the fact that there was this sense of continuity that Earth expanded and you had the Earth Empire and the expansion, stuff like Frontier in Space, and, you know, that some point it got too big and it contracted and you saw stuff like the mutants and Earth became part of a federation later on. That was in the Curse of Pelor. There's this real sense of somebody having thought about future history and making it all work together and even in front here in space they, they do one of those little name checks that we see so often in the modern series where Joe says oh you mean like on Solos no no this is far in the past from that that's in the future so you get these lovely references and that has to be I think a reflection of that stable production team and so much of the, the, the criticism of continuity is the, is the allegation that it, it always looks back it, it's, you're going back and you're not sort of building on 
what you're saying there is that in the at that point they're actually creating continuity, and it's in that creation of continuity that you, you sort of come in on the ground floor, and it's 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 a more enjoyable uh, thing to watch. Yeah, I think you're creating a proper universe in which yeah. the show exists, and that is, I think, an exciting thing. Now, at this point in the show's history, I mean, the show is you know during the Pertwee era, it gets to its tenth year. Mm. And I would argue that you now have the development of a fan base. Mm -hmm. That the kids who are watching in, say, 63 to 69 are now entering sort of their teenage years or their late teenage years. And you reach the point at The Deadly Assassin, and I know I've jumped a a few years ahead, but just go with me, where there is, from my perspective anyway, the first evidence of a fan backlash. Jan Vincent Rutsky famously lambastes the Deadly Assassin, yep. not because of the quality of the story, but because of the depiction of the Time Lords. Yes. And the depiction of the Time Lords in the story serves the purpose of the story, but that's not enough for Mr. Rutsky. It is, uh, it's, an intol- it's intolerable. The way he reacts to it, it's an it's a, it's a, outrage. It's an outrage. It's, mm-hmm. a, it, it's a, you know, a cutting down of the, the omniscient, the godlike uh, Time Lords to something more grubbier and bureaucratic. Now, the, the, the series doesn't react to that as such, but I think that sort of reaction sort of helps factor in what happens in the 80s. Do we do fans eventually take too much of a, a say in, in how Absolutely. the show creates itself? Not, not, not just that, but before we can explore that, if you don't mind, Mark, I think that the really disappointing thing about that is that it shows that fans are losing a sense of imagination because it doesn't take much imagination at all to really appreciate that The Deadly Assassin isn't rewriting continuity it's showing you the time loss from a different angle and and i've always said it's the difference between you go and watch the state opening of parliament in the uk you know where the queen comes and gives a speech from the throne you see that side of the government which is what we've seen in the time Lords before or you see the judge giving the result of a court case in a very ceremonial way that's what we've seen in the time Lords before what they want you to see in the deadly assassin we go behind the scenes and we see what goes on in all the offices that make all that happen yep. And it doesn't take much imagination to get that everything you're seeing in The Deadly Assassin is the back rooms of what you've seen in the war games and what you've seen in the Pertwee era. And the fact that they don't have that imagination and they're so rigid is the start of that detrimental fascination. It is, but I suppose the real problem isn't so much the fans are now starting to to arc up or push back against what the show is showing them. It, it's probably the issue becomes more that, that the production team start listening to them. Yes. Yes. Is, is really the problem. Hmm. Because let's face it, I mean, just going back to your point about Pertwee, I mean, season 10 is probably around the time you start to get the first probably coherent fan groups. I think that's yeah. around the time that the, the initial Doctor Who... The Keith Miller ones? The Keith yeah. Miller club... Yeah. Forms is that about the time of the infamous Capaldi coup attempt? Yeah, that yes, falls over? Yeah, yeah. That, that was yeah. I think that's I think that's somewhere around season ten. Yeah. yeah. Um, so of course you now start to have forums for fans to discuss the series, and I mean, look, pe- people who would join a fan club at that time would be the merest fraction of the viewing audience. Mm. But I suppose because you've got a fanzine that's being disseminated to to a wide area. You've now got people. You've now got views starting to, to reach out beyond. You know, you can talk about it with your friends, but your views don't go any further. Yeah. Now, because you can write in, there's actually a fanzine for you to write into and complain. I didn't like this, or I want to talk about this. 
it now goes to a much broader audience potentially. And also the production office, because they're getting copies of these newsletters as well. And, yes. And by either by accident or design, they're reading this stuff and go, oh, well, actually, yes, it's a good idea or a bad idea. Might bring that on later on. But also, if you don't assume that you've got some sort of long-term viewership, what's the point in making the three doctors? You know, there's, there's no point bringing William Hartnell and Patrick Troughton back unless you assume that enough viewers either are still watching and will remember them or were watching have dropped off and gone, hey, they've brought that guy that I used to watch back, I'll tune in for this new series. Unless you assume there's that many new viewers, and I was, I think, a fair assumption, you don't make the three Doctors. But also you've got like Frontier in Space and Planet of the Daleks, which is basically an attempt by that production team to recreate or homage the Dalek master plan, where they're not doing a massive story, they're doing two separate stories. And then the Planet of the Daleks are referencing Ian, Barbara and Susan. Yes. And then you've also got the Carnival of Monsters, you know, you've got clips of old monsters who, particularly like Sidemen, didn't appear in the Purple Era either. So there's little kisses to the past, as it were, but it's not being shoved down your no, throat if, like later on. if you don't know what a Cyberman is, yeah. and one of them flashes across the ministry, you, you don't know what, you just go, oh, there's a robot in there. Yeah. But if you are a long-term fan, you know, any of us as kids watching, you go, I hate that's a Cyberman! Mm. And that's a really exciting moment. Um, the same with Planet of the Daleks. Look, that's probably slightly more of one that other viewers would go, well, I'm, I'm not meant to know who these are. Mm. But as a fan, you go, hey, wow, he's referencing that story that I've heard of. I was going to mention about the Time Monster, where it, obviously it's set in Atlantis and the destruction of Atlantis, which actually contradicts the underwater menace, and that's the destruction of Atlantis and, as well. And the demons. And the demons as well. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Is the, uh, the family and Kalam going to go on? I would say that Yes, it's very hard to reconcile Time Monster and Demons, but I don't think anything there contradicts the Underwater Menace. Because the Underwater Menace is set many millennia after the destruction of Atlantis, and it doesn't say at any point there why Atlantis is now a ruin under the sea. So there's no reason why what Kronos did didn't leave them as a you know ruined island under the sea that has the last survivors of Atlantis that the Doctor encounters. So... I half agree with you there. So what can we say for the rest of the 70s then in terms of the use of continuity? Um, is there anything much? I mean, I know during the Williams era, there's a return to Gallifrey and the invasion of time. There's Destiny of the Daleks, where, where Davros returns. Well, I think before you get to Davros, which is quite a complicated one, one point that I had here was that returning writers tend to add continuity references back. So... For example, Robert Holmes, every time he writes a story and he refers to Earth, he calls it Sol 3. Yep. Mm. Or he calls Earth humans Tellurians. Now, as a casual viewer who doesn't really pay much attention to who's written every story, you don't realise that that's the same writer doing it. You just go, hey, that's really cool, they've mentioned that again. Or when Terran Sticks brings the Rutons in for a horror of Fang Rock. Now, you don't know that he's done it because he was Robert Holmes's mate and he's decided to do this as a homage to him. Yeah. You just go, hey, that's really cool. I remember them mentioning the Rutons. They've now shown them. That yeah. all fits together. Uh, so in some ways, you get more of a reward being a casual viewer because you don't realise what these links are. And, you know, sometimes writers simply sort of go back to those previous references they've used as an intellectual game for themselves that gives them the sense that they're developing a sort of a, a, a history um, in, in the stories that, that, that they write. Mm. So, yeah. I mean, Invasion of Time was basically... Uh, it was a replacement for another Gallifrey story anyway. Mm. That story was going to be set in Gallifrey regardless. It was going to be the Killer Cats or 
or whatever happened afterwards. Destiny of the Daleks was basically to boost the ratings, to, to really hit the Series 17 with a bang, and it did. I mean, you got the, the narrative of Davos to link it back to Genesis. Davos is there because Terry Nation insisted he had to be there. Didn't I don't he? think he insisted. I think that he wrote the story and that's what well, he wrote. Well, he I did, mean, but he then, I think he, or I'm fairly sure, didn't he then insist basically <coughs> if you use the Daleks, you have to use Davos? From, from then on, yes. Again, that was a nice bit of continuity back to Genesis. But he didn't really have to, or remember it completely. Graham Williams actually said in the late 70s, I can't remember where the quote came from, but he did say, once you start making Doctor Who for the fans, then you're going to lose a general audience. His way was basically, mm. I'm going to make it for the general audience, and that's what it should be. And to come back to my point about the Cybermen's look, clearly with Davros, despite the fact that we had three actors in the classic series and another in the new series playing this character, we're meant to assume that Davros looks the same and sounds the same every time he appears. Terry Malloy Davros is meant to be exactly the same person as the Michael Wisher Davros. We know it's not. He sounds different. He looks different. But we're just meant to realise that that's because the actor's changed and this is actually an identical character. And that's a suspension of disbelief that we all actively engage in when we watch television or movies or read a book or, or whatever, isn't yes. it? So, you know, the same... The fact that the Daleks in Destiny of the Daleks look, well, you know, slightly darker and naffer than the ones in the 60s... Mm. We're meant to just go, well, they're all the same Daleks. We just know that the production team's changed. All right, before we escape from the 70s into the 80s, let's quickly look at Genesis of the Daleks because what they do, I think, in Genesis of the Daleks is the antithesis of what they do in the 80s. Genesis of the Daleks basically rewrites Dalek history. It inserts Davros... It, in, it, it gives you a broader explanation for the Dalek, uh, sorry, the Khaled Thal War, and it doesn't really care that there has been ten or twelve years worth of Dalek history beforehand. No, it's there's enough in there that if you're a genuinely casual viewer or even a semi-casual fan, it name checks the Thals, it name checks the nuclear war. So there's enough there for you. Oh, yeah, I vaguely remember the Thals. Yet, yeah. okay, yeah, I know there was a nuclear war. Okay, this this this, this fits. It, superficially, it fits. It's only when, like a lot of Genesis of the Daleks, when you drill down to it, it very quickly falls apart. Much like the whole plot. But, <laughs> yeah, you can't, come on. The, the nuclear war between two races within spitting distance oh, of yes, no, the last 2,000 years. And, and, you know, where one side has a secret passage to the cabinet room of the other side and still can't win a war. Yes, and, and Davros can just walk up, walk across the wasteland with Nida. Glide. 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 <laughs> Davros can come across the wasteland, walk up to the front door of the Thal city, knock, say, I want to come and talk to your leaders and be given an audience. And not immediately <laughs> captured and tried as a war criminal. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly right. Okay. No, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. Before we unfortunately vacate the 70s and head towards the excess of the 80s. Great music, though. You betcha. Uh, Sharda, uh, unfortunately, uh, didn't get made, or fortunately in some cases, didn't get made, but that would have added more... I suppose, mythos to the Time Wars in, in terms of introduction of a prison for uh, naughty Time Wars to go to. If that had got made, do you think they would have used that again? Well, they possibly could have. I mean, it was the 80s. They used everything else, so... Mm. But, but it's interesting. Even then, they still build stuff around the myth. For example, you look at Underworld. If you mm. Try, try. Well, you're going to go <laughs> here as well, were you? I was, actually. Underworld was the one I was about to mention. But we're, yeah, we're, 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 okay, they, they, they had this idea that the Time Lords have interfered, but they make the effort in the narrative to rationalise that with continuity and say that was before and that was the reason why the Time Lords stopped interfering. Mm. So there, there, acti- there still was this active attempt to rationalise stuff with what had gone before. And that actually does work, I suppose. It, it sort of builds out on that history. It doesn't yeah. go back to the well again. It says, 
Well, these are the timelines that you know, but here's an explanation for why they no longer interfere. So we've leapt into the 80s, and... Well, there's an unfortunate meeting somewhere down at the Heaven nightclub between John Nathan Turner and Ian Levine. (laughs) Is what happens in the 80s as simple as a a producer who doesn't know anything about story and a super fan who inveigles his way into the production team? Both. There, There are two problems. There's one in that we we know for a fact, thank you Richard Martin, that John Nathan Turner wanted to be loved by the fans. And he wanted to go down to the pub with the fans and go out with them and be told, you are God, you are a wonderful person, we love the show you're making, we love that Earthshock thing you did with Simon, give us more of that. And you know when they fell out, that was a big deal. So we, we can talk about that. I think Earthshock, we need to make a note. that That's a turning point for the show. The other thing is that we have got Ian Levine, who has been specifically hired in inverted commas, you know, in, in returns for, you know, props and episodes and stuff, to, to be the continuity advisor. You look at the interview that Eric Sayward gives, I think, on the Warriors on the, of the Deep DVD. He, he talks about how there will be a draft of the script... He would go to Ian Levine, come back with 32 things in the first episode that are wrong or that go against continuity, and then you try and rewrite a story, and he would come back and go, oh, well, I found 15 more. Now, how do you write a good narrative if you've got Uber fans sitting next to you giving you, you know, not just a couple of little, the Doctor wouldn't do this, or, you know, they're called Daleks, or something like that. 32 changes in the story. Yeah. How do you write a story like that? I mean, I haven't even talked about Mordred Undead yet. <laughs> well, well, let's can we talk about Earthshock first? Yeah. Because I, I, I think, and Richard, we've had this discussion on a couple of panels back when we were running the, the club down here. Earthshock is a massive turning point because that was so brilliantly received by the fans, and particularly by the fan glitterati, that for the rest of his time as producer, John Nathan Turner is basically saying, "Make me Earthshock," and he spends certainly the rest of his time with Eric Saywood. He's actively saying regularly, "I want another Earthshock." And you can kind of see regularly along the way all these attempts to do Earthshock again, not because it was a particularly wonderful story. Look, I like Earthshock. It's a great story, but it's not the be-all and end-all. And they're not trying to go back to it because it worked narratively or dramatically or anything. They're going back to it because that's the one the fans love and tell JNT to make. And throw me more flashback sequences. Yeah. Because you had the flashback and Logopolis. I mean, for four years straight, you had Logopolis, you had Earthshock, you had Wardron, you had uh, Resurrection all have flashback sequences in there yeah. because the fans liked it. And the more accolades the fans were pouring on him, the more he'd wheel it out. And Levine was actually editing half the flashback sequences anyway. I mean, you look at Earthshock, what is it about Earthshock that got everyone buzzing other than the story? I mean, obviously the, the Cybermen come back after a long absence and there's, and there's a flashback scene. Is that is that too much continuity? Is that is that what, what are the fans reacting to there? Old clips. Is, that, is, is it That's, as simple as that? I think that it's simple as that old clips because I hadn't seen them before. And well, certainly a lot of the general fans. I, I think also that build up, you know, that, that that infamous part one, destroy him, destroy him at once. Whee! You know that 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 moment. Yeah. They try to get back to again. They try and do it again with resurrection. They try and do it again with revelation. Uh, they they try to do it with warriors of the deep. You know, the the idea is that we're all meant to go. Oh, it's the Silurians! Oh wow! And and be excited about it. Mm. And and you do see. Look, it's a point that's been made ever and ever and over again. But if JNT is actively making it for the, to get the fans to go wow, rather than what's the casual viewer going to think, they are two different paths. Correct. And Doctor Who goes down one at the detriment of the other. Yep. 
And I suppose, do we see that it's apotheosis in Attack of the Cybermen? That's... Well, well, that's one that was allegedly written allegedly by Ian Levine, allegedly. Mm. So when you've got the continuity advisor active, actually writing a story, that story, not, not, it's not just polite references to the past in there. The whole story is predicated on one that was made 20 years ago and at that stage didn't exist in the archives. That's just a ridiculous thing to do. To, to, to think that the assumed knowledge required for story is 20 years old, that's just bonkers. So what we're saying now, I suppose, is that with the fans having apparently the whip hand with at least the producer's ego, stories are being produced for the fans that are actively excluding the general audience? Is that what we're actually saying? Yes. Well, well not just the fans, they're being done for the fan Illuminati. Yep. So it's not for people like us who in the 80s were sitting on a couch at home going, great, my favourite show's on, I want to watch Doctor Who. It wasn't even being made for us. It's being made for the guys who write Celestial Toy Room. It's being write, written for the correspondent of DWM. You know, the ones who are actually going around to JNT's place on the weekend and having drinks with him and Gary Downey, uh, trying to avoid whatever else might go on. But, but you know, it, it's made for them. And you read in Richard Marsden's book about the, the, the infamous fallout at the pub uh, at Longleat, where the fans are actively berating JNT and goading him and gloating him and saying, don't forget, you JNT are temporary. We are here forever. We are the show. You know, that, that was the attitude of them. So it's not, it's not just fans, it's, it's no. super fans. No. So even like season 20, for example, when that rolled around, you know, the, the expectation was around that was like there was going to be Cybermen, Daleks, Ontarans, all the old monsters are coming back. And then in the end, all you're getting is Omega... <laughs> The Mara. The Mara. But that was, I mean, in terms of fan history, it's only one season, season before. You've got the Guardians, which, let's be honest, only the fans would remember. Well, well even that, sorry, to make the point. Okay, you get to episode one of Earthshock, mm. and you have the cliffhanger, a Cyberman appears. Enough people are going to know what a Cyberman is and what it looks like to go, wow, that's a Cyberman. You get to the cliffhanger of Mordred Undead, and he says, I, the Black Guardian, command you. How many people are going to go, oh, the Black Guardian? I remember that guy who was in 43 seconds of the Armageddon Factor. Exactly. But I'll just push back slightly, Dave. If you're a general member of the audience, do you care that you don't know who the Black Guardian is? No, but the show is being made with the intent that you do. So that cliffhanger and that plot only really works if you know who the Black Guardian is. Because at no point does anybody turn around and say, oh, who's the Black Guardian? Oh, the Black Guardian, he's this guy. There's none of that. Mm Mm-mm. I mean, if you take... I mean, Eric Saber, by this point, is fairly new to the show. And obviously, he's trying to get some new stories in and being told by JNT, actually, you've now got to put the Black Guardian into these three stories. If you take the Black Guardian out of Mordred Undead, Terminus and Enlightenment, I mean, really, what's the, what's the consequence? Not really that much. No. Well, other than Turlow actually being a psychopath who wants to murder the Doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Not can, because he's forced yeah, to. Yeah, but you could tweak that, right? You could, but you don't... You just have him, he's, just, he's been exiled with Earth, the Doctor picks him up and away they exactly go. Exactly right. You know, well, well I mean, you, you could even have him as somebody who tries to steal the TARDIS. You know, he's now stranded on Earth. The TARDIS rocks up. He doesn't care about the Doctor. He just wants to get away. I'll steal that, that timeshare. All you want to say about the unit dating is, again, look, they put some quite specific dates in a Mordred. And again, it's only fans who are going to sit there and go, but hang on, Sarah Jane says she's from 1980. Um, well, well, actually, that's the point I was going to make. You actually can't rationalise pyramids of Mars with the, with the 70s 
well before Morden and Jedi. No, but I mean, I guess the inference in the Troughton era is that we're now in the early the, uh, Web of Fear and that take place in 1975. Yes. Um, so it, it is Morden really that takes it up because if you say that the Pertwee era is the late 70s and Pyramids then she would be from around 1980 so it is Morden that takes it up and I mean you get the thing with the new series where they just gloss over it saying well it was the 70s or the 80s depending on yes. which dating structure you use I think Tack of the Cybermen is the point of no return for Doctor Who but it's not because of the continuity it's actually because of the twin dilemma the, twi- the twin dilemma is, is, I think, the start of the death spiral. Mm-hmm. I think they had a chance probably to reverse it in Attack. They don't take it. And then from there on, we're, we're, we are in now in the death spiral. So Attack gets nine po- Attack episode 1 gets 9.1 million viewers. The next week it loses 1 to 2 million viewers and it is a spiral to the middle of the season. Is that because of the quality of the story being told? Or is it because audiences, the general audience has been so badly alienated by the continuity references of episode 1 that they go, bugger this, I don't understand what I'm looking at, I'm off. Is it as simple as that? I... I- I would yes. say it's possibly a bit of a mixture. I mean, as I said, we're getting off a continuity discussion, but given what the twin dilemma is, and I, I think in terms of context, the twin dilemma is the, is the most appalling show the classic series did because you make you, you go to all the trouble, you've regenerated the Doctor, you've done this big, lavish departure for Peter Davison, you've got your new Doctor in, you're actually going to give him a story so audiences can see him and, and the users can get to know him before the new series starts... You've got your lead actor that you're really happy with and you, to the point you haven't looked at anybody else. This is the bloke we're going with. You stick him in that ridiculous costume. You give him this absolute, just pathetic, cheap runaround that is clearly the we-have-no-money-left end-of-the-season dregs of the budget. You make him a totally unlikable prick um, to the point where he actually physically assaults his companion and she has this whole battered woman thing going on where, you know, she's just trying to make the best of the situation, not, you asshole, take me home. Mm-hmm. You have a big backlash against it. You have the chance to do a hard reset in Attack of the Sidemen, get him out of the costume, soften the character, do whatever you want to do. You know, look, the coat was just bad taste due to post-regenerative stress or whatever you want to call it, and you don't. You just dish up more of the same. Yeah. And you add all the continuity crap in on top of it and I think that's just a recipe for disaster. I think Richard's absolutely right because I lived through that myself with season six of the new series. <laughs> and and, and I, I mean this absolutely seriously. I didn't enjoy that first half mm. but you have the break after the good man goes to war at which point I think it happened for all of us. We're sitting there going, look, they've had a break. We didn't like the first half. Let's see what the new series is offering or the new second half is offering. We watched Let's Kill Hitler and said, well, it's exactly the same. We'll stop now. And I think we lived through exactly what audiences yeah, well, did. Yeah, well, I did. I must admit, let, let's get... Well, I mean, into season six. Let's kill Hitler was what finished me with Doctor Who that year. Yeah, yeah, but, but, no, no, no. I will say that the problem with Twin Dilemma and the way they treat the after-effects of regeneration is, is the fact that... Um, they have decided for whatever reason the production team that the regeneration totally knocks the Doctor for a mm-hmm. spin and you see that a little bit in the, in the, in the first Davison story so they've instead of having you know regeneration being something that like for Troughton it's something that affects you for five minutes and then you move on they've decided well we're going to devote the entire story almost to the after effects of the regeneration on the but, Doctor but really when you've got your lead heroic character on the floor trying to strangle his companion on the floor of the TARDIS, you've got a problem. Now, you've got a problem because they have decided that the regeneration mm. affects the, doc- the Doctor negatively and the fact that he's on the floor yes. strangling Perry... But you could if, have if, him black no, out if, if, at opportune yeah. moments in the script. You don't have to have him if assaulting twin, if, his companion. If the twin dilemma had been for Colin, what Robot was for Tom Baker. Mm. Robot's not a classic, but it is a extremely easy-to-watch 
fun, safe, enjoyable adventure that lets you just go, okay, without thinking too hard, here's the new Doctor, it's Tom Baker, this is a fun story, I kind of like this guy, I want to watch the next one. Exactly. That, that, that's what they should have done. And, and, and the fact that they have fixated on the regeneration badly affecting the Doctor has affected the way that Twin Dilemma is viewed and, 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 and produced. That the Doctor is a prick because of he's adversely affected mm. by the, the regeneration. If they'd just gone, as you said, Dave, just tell the story. He's affected for five minutes and he moves on. You don't have that problem necessarily. You don't have that alienating factor because they've decided that regeneration is, is something that, instead of repairing the Doctor, actually makes him worse, in effect. Especially when they've done the Castro Volva. Yes. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Yeah. And, and, but the problem is you have the opportunity to undo that at the start of the next season. Yes. You can say, as I said, we'll get him out of the cost or do whatever you want to do to get the series back on track, and they don't take it. And, as I said, I think that's the start of the death spiral. Okay. You wanted to mention the five doctors. I was actually going to say the five doctors. I think it's fan wank done right, really, isn't it? You can understand why they did the five doctors because it is a special mm. anniversary. It's twenty years of the show being yeah. on television, which is you know for, for television is almost unheard of. Mm. That's you can get away with that, mm. and, and it's done with a wonderful sense of love. Yeah, and, yeah. and for for any fan, I mean, you know, from the very first moment when you know fade up from black, there's William Hartnell. You know, he's been dead for a number of years. But there's William Hartnell. You know, one day I shall come back. Yes, I shall come back. That's just a wonderful start. And it goes right through until... And I still get goosebumps when I see that final line where the Doctor turns around with that grin and says, why not? That's how it all started. That's just a lovely little moment. Yep. And then it, you, know, you get the whole... Um, that, that wonderful mix of the Howl and the Derbyshire yeah. theme to finish. It's just mm-hmm. done with love. Well, the first Doctor was either going to use clips from the three that remained at that time. Or, or recast. Or recast. I went back and looked at some DWMs around that time in terms of the, the, the commentary around it. It was actually fairly accepted okay. Mm. Uh, and in terms of the, the, the way the performance was uh, reviewed afterwards, it's not William Hartnell. It's a, a mm. close approximation. And, and again, it was done with love. It was done with love, exactly and, right. And don't forget that if... And don't forget the Five Doctors was billed as the 20th anniversary special. So the audience tunes in for that not only accepting, but expecting mm. a certain amount of nostalgia. Mm. So it's not just when we'll turn in for you know, Tuesday night, oh, what have we got? It's, okay, everyone, we're all going to just tune in for this special, and we're all going to have a bit of fun. A 90-minute runaround, and we're just going to remember, yeah, remember yeah. how great this series was. Yeah, yeah. And, and if you're expecting that and you're doing that, and the audience is with you, that can be great. Yeah. But there was certainly no adverse reaction to Richard Herndall's interpretation from what I... I didn't even bat an eyelid as a, as a kid. I remember I was watching it once, uh, I had it on video, and I was watching it, and then uh, Herndall goes, I'm, I'm the Doctor, the original, you, you might say. And my mum goes, no, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> do, do we want to say anything about the two Doctors where a clearly greying Patrick Troughton appears and leads to a fan theory about season 6B? Uh, the first thing I'll say is that as a viewer, I didn't even notice the grey hair. Yep. Like, you, and even if you do... I think most intelligent people just go, well, Patrick Trahan's older. Mm. He's an actor. Of course he looks older. And that ties in with your idea about the Cybermen being yeah. the same look, yeah. even though they change from what we said. I think JNT did actually try to get the dyer's hair. Okay. But I guess you then, if you take the continuity approach, of course, you also have the other stuff too, whereas Jamie knows who the Time Lords are. Yep. The Doctor's actively going on missions for them. Victoria's he's, been dropped he's off. He's dropped Victoria yeah. off with the expectation yes, that yeah. he can go and get her back. Yeah. He has that little remote control thing for the TARDIS. Yep. Which leads to the whole, as you were alluding to, Rob, the whole creation of Season 6B, mm. which not only has become accepted by fandom, but Terence Dix has made it 
canonical, I guess you could say, by putting it in all Holland original fiction books. Yeah, well, it's on the BBC's website. Well, there you go. Yeah. And even Levine was still continuity advisor by that stage. Hmm. So if the scripts are passing over Levine's desk before they get into production, he's looking at it going, oh my God, this completely screws continuity. They're actually saying, do you know what? We don't care, the story comes first, we'll just let mm. it slide. Well, they either say that or he's missed it. I get the feeling, based on the Eric Sayward interviews, we've seen that Sayward just didn't care anymore. He just didn't okay. care, and mm. I think Robert Holmes actually under the impression that Troughton doing the missions, not yes. certainly. Yeah, and, and, and I actually suspect that if you've got Robert Holmes writing and Robert Holmes says, sorry, fan, Robert Holmes, mm. <laughs> who are you going to listen to? <laughs> and I've rewritten this thing 14 times already, I'm yes. not having another yes, crack, yes, I am done. We were going to be in New Orleans, but now we're in Seville. All right. Can, can I make two very quick comments about the Colin Baker era yes uh, one was one thing that absolutely did completely throw me uh, as a casual viewer or a fan viewer back in the 80s was the use of Pertwee's image in Time Lash yes now I can remember as a kid and I would have been six maybe seven at the time seeing the image of Pertwee being told all about how the John Pertwee had had or the third Doctor had had this previous adventure the concept of non-existent adventures didn't exist in my mind. So I was literally going back through my, you know, Radio Times 20th anniversary special, working out, okay, well, I've seen these stories. He doesn't go to that planet there. It's clearly not these ones I haven't seen because the Daleks weren't in it. And I worked out that the mutants had to, had to be the story where the Doctor went to Carful because it was the only one that I hadn't seen and that didn't clearly from its, you know, one sense plotline couldn't have been done Carful. So I genuinely thought for a long time that Time Lash was a sequel to, to the, the mutants. mutants. Well, you know, the Borat is a type of mutant, I suppose. So. <laughs> um, um, and, and sorry, and a similar thing happened to me when I saw uh, Mind Warp for the first time. I didn't appreciate, understand it as a, as a again, what was I by then, sort of seven-ish, seven, eight-ish. I got this idea that the Matrix was lying and distorting history, but again, I didn't know that it was distorting fake history. I thought that this was a distorted version of Vengeance on Varus. Hmm. Because okay. that oh, was yes. because of Sill. Because of Sill. Yes. So I thought this is this is them really telling Vengeance on Varos in a distorted way. Uh, just an example of how um, these things don't work for kids. Uh, the other point I wanted to make is that this is the first time that shows history where never mind the production team, the lead actor is a fan, and that actually does manifest itself on occasions, including the start of Trial of Time Lord, where infamously Colin Baker was the one who said, "Hang on, don't forget the Doctor's the president of Gallifrey." We need a line to cover this, and that's where you get the "I'm the Lord President of Gallifrey. You can't put me on trial. No, you're not. You're deposed. Okay, let's get on with the story." Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was inserted because Colin mm-hmm. Baker wanted it there, so that just shows the, the influence that it's having now from that point of view. So, Doctor Who escapes a uh, near-death experience and lasts for another four years. Andrew Cartmill joins the team. What's his approach to continuity? Does he build on it in a sense, or does he sort of ignore it and just concentrate on stories? I think that he, to a certain extent, ignores it. He's certainly not shackled by it. And if anything, he actually tries to move away from as much of it as possible and famously had the view that the less the audience knows about the Doctor, the more mysterious and dramatic he is. And if that means we have to shy away from a bit of what we know about the Doctor and actually hint that maybe there's a lot more we don't know, then we need to do that. Cartwell never contradicts continuity. He just hints that maybe we don't know the whole story. I actually think that's quite a clever way to do it. It's it's a way of unfamiliarising the Doctor for the audience. Or defamiliarising him, mm. him and his people. Yeah, yeah, and and when they have the cyber in Silver Nemesis, whatever you think of the show, yeah. <laughs> there, there's there's no sense of cyber history in that. It's just the Cybermen have rocked up at this period looking like that. Who cares? Let's have a Cyberman story. Yeah, fair enough. Richard, any thoughts? 
You're right. Look, that era doesn't really rely on continuity. I mean, with the exception, you've got the Daleks and the Sidemen make a return appearance and you have what? You have the Brigadier back and you have the Master back. And even when you have the Master back, I think for the first time in a number of stories, there's no, so, you escaped from the Matrix. Yeah. Yeah. There's no sense of trying to link it back. He's just there. There's a story element. I think it's probably a compromise with JNT where he could have two returning a year and Carmel could do two originals a year as well. The, the often thing that, that's said about Andrew Cartman is he wanted to take more a graphic novel and a comics approach. And if you look at a lot of graphic novels and indeed comic series particularly, they do a continuity hard reset every few years anyway. Yes. Because you need to have a new inventive storyline to, to hook new listeners because if you have all this crap that goes back 30 years or more in the case of you think of a character like Batman, yeah. um, you just lock everybody out. Yeah. So, of course, you have to do a reset or have some sort of way of bringing new readers in all the time. Mm. Mm. Which is exactly what the TV movie didn't do. Where it locks <laughs> out the, the brand new audience in the first uh, three minutes, doesn't it, really? But then again, as fans, we all thought that was, oh, look at Sylvester McCoy, he's back yeah. on screen. You know, cue tear trickling. Yeah. And don't forget, that was a pushback against or a reaction to the fan reaction to Time and the Rani, where everybody was incensed that Colin, for completely valid and legitimate reasons, didn't want to do five minutes of return for Tom yeah. and Rani everybody said how terrible it was what a terrible regen it needed to be linked and Sylvester McCoy said oh I would never let the fans down I'll always appear to do a regeneration there was no sense that that was the wrong thing to do and in, in many ways the telly movie had to happen to show us that it was the wrong thing to do yeah and didn't help also in our production that they had a fan liaison as well which was Leah Fissier as well so I mean the, the best thing the TV movie did was actually show RTD how not to relaunch a series but it, it, it did take its continuity seriously enough that they did a remount because McCoy held the sonic screwdriver around the wrong way hmm. so that's that's a pretty big call to make <laughs> on the flip side it rated well and it, the, 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 it, the reason it didn't go to a series is not because of continuity it's because of American television production reasons yes but it certainly helped to learn lessons about what not to do. But okay. if they were going to go down a series of path, they would have mined the continuity for storylines. Like, well, I think the story yeah. bible that... Um, who was the uh, producer? John Leakley? John Leakley? No. Uh, who was the producer on it? I can't <laughs> remember. Siegel. No, it was... Um, Siegel. It was oh, Siegel. Yeah. Was, was continuity full, I think. skip forward to the new series I'll ask one question about RTD should he have gone for a hard reboot the Doctor the TARDIS and everything else is forgotten or was he right to do a sort of soft reboot with his own version of continuity laid on top at the time I thought what he did was the right decision with the benefit of hindsight I would actually go for the hard reboot Mm. sense the same as Battlestar Galactica did, the same as the various iterations of the Tomorrow People have done, and there's a number of other series, the new Star Trek movies, for example. They've just said, okay, it's the TARDIS, it's the Doctor, and that's it. And start again. We're not going to say which incarnation this is. For all we know, it's the first, it's the 43rd, who cares? This is a brand new series. If they then want to do continuity, like in the way that Trek brings in the Vulcans or the Romulans, they can. You can reintroduce the Daleks... You can give them the same look. You, you don't have to. They can come from Scarrow. They don't have to. You can do whatever you like. And I think it's telling that even Star Wars, which is very anal about its continuity, the people who were doing the new movies actively jumped. Like, not, not just 
quietly did it. They made an active published decision. We are junking the extended universe continuity because we do not want to be bound by it. That could have been a really good approach to do. And then you don't have to worry about how many regenerations the Doctor can has or whether the Master does this or whether it fits in here. That's my view anyway. I always think of the um, the new series approach to continuity. I call it the Earthshock analogy where RTD is like Adric at the keyboard, very tentative when he's trying to reference uh, continuity where Moffat is sort of on the freighter driving it towards the Earth and crashing all around. <laughs> but even, even the RTD era gets caught up in its own continuity very quickly. Not, not past, its own. Yeah. Because you look at the Daleks, very quickly he makes what I think is a good decision to say, right, there was a time war, the time wars of the Daleks, they're gone. Erased from history, they're gone. Then you get the ability to bring the Daleks back. So you have the story where you have the one surviving Dalek ever in the entire history of time and space. It gets destroyed. You then find the other Dalek that was the other one surviving history Dalek in the history of time and space that made more Daleks. They all get destroyed. You then get, oh, there's also this time capsule that controls all the other Daleks that were the only Daleks ever to survive, etc, etc, etc. That goes through the whole RTD period. They just find excuses about why there's more Daleks. At least, whatever you say about the nonsense that was Victory of the Daleks under Moffat, at least that was the one that said, right, stuff it. The Daleks will get away, and the Daleks are now back. So forget about all that stuff. You don't have to reintroduce them every time. The Daleks are just back. He completely destroyed the Cybermen, but that's another story. (laughs) Well, I mean, I suppose RTD, as a fan, could never quite divorce himself from not referencing the Daleks, not bringing them back. I, I suppose part of the thing, though, with probably with the new series, with when the new series came back, the old series probably never really went away. Unlike, say, a Battlestar, where let's be honest, I mean, it had been twenty odd years, and most people, I think, have probably forgotten about Battlestar Galactica, rather than a few diehards. Classic Doctor Who had never really gone away. Mm. There was still merchandise being produced. Big Finish still obviously had an active listenership, who were tuning in for previous Doctor stories, etc. So you probably have to deal with that. Now, I guess you could take the Star Wars... And let's face it, you're right. Star Wars was extremely anal about its continuity because they even had levels of canonicity. This is A, this is B, this is C, and as long as C doesn't contradict A or B, well, you can you can talk about it or whatever. Disney, of course, when they took it up, just like, well, we've got the rights to these, screw it. We're just going our own way. Um, you know, to the point they even made a point where you know George Lucas said he gave them what several pages full of, of stuff he thought where the series might go, and those went, yeah, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> We're doing this, so you probably did have a problem, perhaps, with when the series came back. Plus, of course, you still had that, and we've talked about it in the past, that that sort of group of just old series fans that yes, gave you an immediate audience because hey, Doctor Who's back, but of course, how do you? work around them and I'm not saying that you can't have the Daleks back of course you can but don't pretend that they're the only Dalek in the whole universe no. for bloody times and in some ways he does go for the hard reset with the Cybermen he creates a whole new origin story for the Cybermen and then kind of just throws it away yeah, yeah. and then suddenly in the Moffat era you've got the Cybermen sort of as we remember them with fleets and all this sort of stuff are they the same Cybermen or are they the Cybermen continuity let's face it I think the new series has done a lot of good things in terms of continuity I think the Daleks coming back was great and has been done really well some Tarans apart from Strax I don't mind there's a lot of stuff they've brought back the one thing they've really really just 
buggered is the Cybermen. Mm. They've buggered them in terms of their values, they've buggered them in terms of their approach, in terms of their narrative, and they've completely buggered them in terms of any sense of continuity. It is, it is just a nonsense. I mean, the, the, in Series 2, he brought back Sarah Jane more for a, a plot device in terms of what happens to a companion after she leaves the Doctor. It wasn't... And that was sort of tentative kiss to the past, wasn't it, really? Well, that's an example of you bring back a companion because you've got something to do with them. Yeah. That, that, that story... It both works in a narrative sense to have Sarah Jane there, but he wants to say to Rose, "This is this is what your future could be." Yeah, and that's a really interesting story to have. So there's a, there's a genuine reason to bring to bring Sarah back in that, mm. as opposed to some stories where it's just, "Hey, the companion's back. Why? Who cares?" Mm. <laughs> so it's sort of like Worf in the Star Trek movies, where where by by, by the ninth one, it's just, "Hey, Worf's back, everyone. Oh, cool." <laughs> um, I mean, if anything, the Sarah Jane Adventures was more happy to embrace Doctor Who continuity than what the new series was under RTD. Which is ironic, given that five-year-olds would have no idea anyway. No, exactly. <laughs> but, but you're right, they bring us back yeah. stuff like um, uh, Joe Jones, you know, yeah. and they, they reference Cliff Jones and her son, he got his son exactly and right. been in the Amazon, etc. Like, huge amounts of really detailed continuity that's probably the least likely to be watched by an old fan. And the clips were just... Yeah, it's a smorgasbord. Yeah, that's, you're right, that's interesting. Well, let's leave RTD in the dustbin of history and move on to Stephen Moffat. <laughs> Stephen Moffat comes along, and he's very much a fan, and indeed, I think his per- first piece of professional Doctor Who fiction, uh, fiction was a short story called Continuity Errors, which appeared in the uh, collection Decalogue, uh, the third Decalogue book, uh, where he has the seventh Doctor repeatedly going back in time, uh, changing elements of a particular librarian's history so that their mood improves so that they allow the Doctor to borrow a book. And I think we see... Yeah, I know, I know. Tiny wimey. Bear with me here. And, and we see, I think we see elements of that in uh, A Christmas Carol yes. later yes. on. So, from one perspective, Moffat is a bit of a traditionalist. Uh, he likes his Doctor Who continuity. We see, you know, kisses to the past, so to speak. We see the Dravens reappear in... I don't know, the episode before the Big Bang or whatever it's called. Yeah, really nicely done. Like, yeah. Nobody's put out, no, no casual audience member is put out by, uh, on a list of names, one of them's the Dravens. Yes. Yeah. Old fans go, hey, that's really nice. Yes. Had a and couple of photos of previous Doctors when exactly. he pulled out the wallet. So yeah, yeah. It just, it, yeah that's, that, that, that stuff's really nice. Yeah. Now, I would say that he loses his mind during the anniversary year. We have the introduction of Clara, who, as a plot device, is seeded through the Doctor's entire history to save the Doctor from... She is the reason why the Doctor actually wins, because she's there at the key moments to save his life, to, to, to save the day. She was the only left Gallifrey. She was the impetus to choose that TARDIS and not that TARDIS over there. What can we say about Stephen Moffat at this particular point? Look, without relitigating the it was Clara a good companion or not, because I think we know the verdict the four of us would come down on for that... Yeah, it's it's an unnecessary intrusion into the show's history that I, I don't understand the rationale for. Exactly why? And and it, it extends then to decisions made where he it just it extends then to decisions made where Moffat decides he is personally going to fix in inverted commas bits of Doctor Who history, hmm. and and his desperation to do that, I would contend actually comes to the detriment of some of the drama and to the detriment of the series. And the big example that I would point to, Your Worship, is is um in Time of the Doctor, yeah. they give the Doctor a whole lot of new set of regenerations. Now, that, that's fine. At some point, 
if you're accepting the Deadly Assassin 13 regions rule, yes, at some point the show was going to hit that and had to deal with it. No problems, that's fine. Well, particularly since you had David Tennant use two of them. Well, but that's the point. That's yeah. the point. He has gone back and rewritten Journey's End to insert another regen there. Never mind whether you accept that he did or didn't need to insert the John Hurt Doctor. Again, we won't relitigate that. Even if you give him that one, even if you give him that one, the only reason he then goes and inserts a double David Tennant one is so that he is the one to deal with that regeneration's point at that point. And I think that that's a great shame because he misses a trick. Because could you imagine a series where you have the 13th Doctor not knowing he's going to get a new regeneration cycle? All the way through Doctor Who's history, you've always had this safety net that if he gets shot by a Dalek, we know he can regenerate. Imagine a series of Doctor Who with a Doctor who thinks that the next time he dies, that's it. Does he take the same risks? Does he put his life on the line the same way? Does it change his actions? I would love to see the drama come out of a Doctor who thinks that he is now mortal mm. in a way he's never been. And so not only do we have an unnecessary insertion in Doctor's history, I think it comes at the detriment of the show. Yes, he's creatively slid himself down a blind alley, hasn't he, by desiring to be the man who gives the Doctor an additional set of regenerations. Yes. You're right. Absolutely right. But some people will say that they are kisses to the past, where he is... Uh, rewarding long-term fans of the show and also fans of his era with these little, or that's a major, that's a major retcon, but with little references here and there to reward long-term uh, viewers. But, but also a point that I know we've discussed in our previous mm. correspondence is whether some of the internal continuity is going to be awry here with certain production decisions because it feels like in Day of the Doctor they're setting up a whole arc now where Matt Smith's Doctor goes and tries to find Gallifrey. Yeah. That gets jettisoned very, very quickly Mm. to the point that in the next episode, in Time of the Doctor, Gallifrey is kind of just over there and you can reach it by shouting loudly or something and they can send in the regions. And and it gets, you know, a a lip service with Capaldi where Missy says, oh, Gallifrey's over there and it's not and he gets to have his hissy fit. And then suddenly Gallifrey's just there. It's on the other side of a diamond wall. So given uh, given how focused Stephen Moffat is on his own internal narrative, his own continuity. I think that's an extraordinary leap to set up that Gallifrey thread and then not really follow through. I, I think that's a real missed thing, but then again, I'm still not sure if Rory's an Auton still or not, so I'm probably not the best person and to I'm ask. Not, and I'm not going to mention the Iron Patriot either. The uh, <laughs> thing is, with some of these decisions, especially from Gallifrey and things like that, is it sort of coming home to roost now in terms of has he locked out enough of the audience, the general audience, to say, well, I just don't care anymore? Yeah, look, I don't know, but, but can, I, can I say in his defence as well, Listen, I think, is one of the best stories of the Moffat era and one of the best stories of the Capaldi era. Mm. You could argue that that completely destroys, changes, adjusts the Doctor's timeline because it shows the Doctor as a young boy growing up. Yeah. I didn't care because I thoroughly enjoyed that episode. Mm. And because it didn't actually contradict anything, it gave us a new insight into it. Mm. And I didn't feel that that was stamping on continuity. For Moffat, I see some lovely little touches. I see some really good stories. But this 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 crowbarring in on unnecessary continuity is a very specific aspect of his showrunner time that I'm attacking. Richard, any thoughts? I probably haven't watched enough of the no. new series to make a point. <laughs> I was going to say that. No, I, I really can't add to that. I mean, I guess the, the only thing you would say is you've got the shoehorning in a continuity You've then, of course, got the arc material and whether people really are following mm. the the arcs that come through. And I, I, again, look, I haven't watched enough of the series probably to, to, to validate that. But 
that's maybe the other thing that, that we would talk about with Stephen Moffat is a lot of his series involve these big series long quite detailed arcs I believe and if I'd watched it maybe I'd know but is that a factor as well? Mark you've always had a problem with Stephen Moffat and his handling of his arcs I don't think they're satisfying personally mm. I don't think the, the resolution of them are, are particularly good if I have to go to a Wikipedia page to find out the resolution of say the Big Bang then I think there's a problem. Now, some people could say that I'm not listening enough or I'm not paying attention enough. Well, that's a personal opinion. That's a personal opinion. That's fine. I mean, you still don't know what happened, do you? No. There are parts of the Matt Smith continuity I've got no idea what happened. Mm. I don't think it's a good outcome from a viewer. I mean, um, you know, I, I, I don't know why the TARDIS blew up. I don't know how the Doctor got back at the end of the thing where he stopped existing. I don't know whether Rory's still an Norton. And if you have to spend half an hour explaining it... So is that... that make I was going to say, is that a problem that the arc is not being well enough explained and set up and the resolutions provided or is it just that it's lost in a heap of other stuff it could be all of the above well well there are clearly fans out there who think they do get it yeah so clearly it has worked for other people yeah so it must be some combination thereof that allows some people who are in tune with it or for whom it resonates that get it and if it doesn't resonate with you it just or goes that, over your head I was about to say or is it more because they care more than you guys and are actually making a point of actually sitting down re-watching them to pull out every single little nuance no, well, well this is, sorry this comes back to Mark's point if you can't watch it properly and we're not watching it casually we're watching it as a proper series 30 weeks in a row and giving it our full attention if that's not enough for what I would say are all you know, for reasonably intelligent viewers that's not enough for us to understand the plot then there's a problem. Mm. Babylon 5, for all its faults, and you're right, it's a hard series to access in the middle, but if you watch Babylon 5 from start to finish, you didn't need to go on, you didn't need to go back and be told how it all worked. You got enough explanation in there to make it work. Yes. To the point where you had, you know, Delenn or Kosh would just sit down for 10 minutes and go, let me explain the plot to you. I, I suppose the thing with B5, though, was it was always planned as a five-year story it was going to start here. It was going to end here. So it's the Moffat era. But is it? Because well, well, I, well the, the one the one year arc certainly are. You, you, I mean, I would so, be, so, I would is, be it a, so if, is it a planning issue thing? Well, I would be staggered if he didn't know when he started writing series six how it was going to finish. Hmm. Possibly just the execution. I think sometimes Moffat gets caught up in in the insularity, the minutiae of his storylines that he forgets that there's an audience that's actually meant to watch it. And that's the danger, I think, with continuity, a slavish devotion to continuity, even in an internal continuity, where you're writing, effectively you're writing it for yourself and your own intellectual stimulation, and you forget there's an audience out there that just wants to tune in once a week for 45 minutes and enjoy what they're watching. And when he does it well, this, this is not an attack on Moffat, because when he does it well, it can be really, really rewarding. Yes. You look at the internal continuity of the Big Bang, where you've got the stuff where Matt Smith's Doctor is travelling back and forth and you can, you can see, okay, so he's got the Fez at that point and the Mop at this point and that all sort of leads into it. That, I thought that was brilliantly rewarding because I could fo follow with a bit of attention the thread of the narrative through the episode. It's very clever and it's very good. I couldn't follow the thread of other plots, parts of the plot. Hmm. So you need like a Donnie Darko type... Um... <laughs> Well, but the thing is if you look yeah. at uh, just using that as a, as a quick it just popped into my head then that is a meticulously planned and plotted movie nothing in that movie is, is there by accident mm. or it's there every single shot everything in that movie is there for a reason try and help you navigate your way through the story and un unpick the story as you go along let's wrap this up by looking to the future in a few words how should uh, 
Mr. Chibnall approach continuity going forward in 2018? Never be the slave to it. Let the drama do what the drama needs to do. And if that means bending the rules occasionally, we'll bugger it. A few fans will hate you, but make a good story. Mark. The same. Don't be a slave to it. What they said. I suppose the thing is, like, this now gives you probably another, given you heard a complete change of production team, you're going to get a new doctor and a new companion. This probably gives you another opportunity to do a complete hard reset, mm. um, yeah. I think. And this this maybe should be the opportunity just to go, look, that's happened. We're just going to start again, complete slate. But would you, would you ever do a hard, hard reset where you actually said, this is now the first Doctor. I think you would have to wait until the show is rested and comes back in yeah, X number of years. No, I wouldn't do it as the first Doctor, but yeah. I, I think you can, a bit like probably the, the cut between maybe War Games and Spearhead, where there is just a complete reset of the show, the yeah. start of the Doctor changes, and you effectively start again in some ways. Yeah, no, that's fair. And for myself, I can only agree with what everyone else has said. <laughs> Got mail. And now it's time for our feedback section. So, Richard, we have an email there from Jed Sweeney down in Geelong. We do, and Jed writes, Hi, guys. I must have been among a significant number of people listening to Verity Extra Podcast. No doubt you have heard about them playing your theme tune. But so far, no mention of the web's best Doctor Who AFL Fusion podcast on <laughs> podcast. I know you are avoiding all talk of Season 10, but could I just say that Whovians is quite possibly one of the biggest piles of smug, self-indulgent, aren't-we-funny fan-wank I have had the misfortune to watch recently. I have been trying to be more positive about Whovians, but after three episodes, what can I say? For the dear love of absolutely anything and everything, will the panel members please stop trying to crack a joke every time they open their mouths? This is really making me hate the program a lot more than I probably should, and a lot more than is probably healthy for me. Adam Richards is okay, and as the creative force behind ABC's Outland about five years ago, I can cut him some slack. Rove is Rove. If you like his rakish smugness, then good for you. My jury is still out on this one. The panel having women on each week is a positive, if only as it might help address the perception that all Doctor Who fans are white nerdy males, as said by a white nerdy male. (laughs) Stephen Conroy informing us that MP George Christensen is a Doctor Who fan. So being a Doctor Who fan is enough to expect us to forgive our very own face of Bo George Christensen for all his bigotry and bile. I don't think so. What do I like apart from the end credits? Well, as Eve said to Adam, that's a hard one. (laughs) Anytime they look at Easter eggs or references call back to earlier Doctor Who. The important, not important segment, where the panel briefly opined, thank goodness, as to whether certain lines or events are going to be important or not later on in the series. Rove's water spray for outlandish fan theories, most of which do appear to emanate from Adam Richards. Realistically, any program which was purely a clinical dissection of the episode is unlikely to appeal to a large audience, even if it is on ABC too, which by definition should preclude it from having a large audience. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I am, after all, just a barker, and should shut up moaning about something that I have previously described as a festering bag of slime, and would even go so far as to describe as a stinking offal. Copyright R.C. Holmes, 1984. <laughs> Don't mention the pies and keep punching. P.S. Calm the catters. Well, look, I'll be honest with you. I've only watched the first 10 minutes of uh, Whovian's the first episode, and I turned it off. When I heard a J&T reference being delivered, A, awkwardly, and B, thinking, you wouldn't even know who J&T is. 
Look, end of the day, I think Adam Richards is the saving grace of the day little bit I saw. I think of this show like the the Talking Dead, but hosted by the Walking Dead. <laughs> to be perfectly honest, it's a way of normalising fandom. Uh, by having, I suppose, celebrities and air quotes uh, hosting it, and some are using it, I'll be honest with you, to resuscitate their TV career or have really not shown much interest in Doctor Who prior to this. Prior to this, and are using it to establish a, a alternate comedy career. So I can't comment on much because I've only seen ten minutes. Of I've it. I've watched strangely enough for me. I've actually watched a couple of them, and and you're right. I think Adam Richards is probably the best thing on it. Mm. I think it is probably the kind of show that a casual viewer could watch and not feel like a complete sad anorak for watching because it's very the discussion is fairly light and it's very sort of wow isn't this great type stuff so there's really no hugely what i would call in-depth picking a part of the narrative that might alienate people there's no really obsessive um, fan stuff being put forward in there. It's 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 a show aimed probably for the casual viewer who just wants to kick on a little bit and maybe watch something else where a couple of people talk about it. Have you watched it, Rob? No, not because I don't like it. I just have no time to watch anything like that, so no. Dave? No, I really don't much like Rob McManus as a host or a comedian. I've never forgiven him for giving the world Peter Hellier. And I'm, I'm, I, I, just don't watch, I just don't want to watch a show hosted by Rob McManus. So look, thanks for your thoughts, Jed. Uh, I really can't comment too much on it because I haven't watched much of it and probably won't watch much of it either. And to wrap things up, before we all leave, we're going to quickly uh, talk about our Target book club. And, and reassign our new ones. And reassign new ones. So mm. uh, anybody who doesn't know, we're just gonna, we've are just going to we been rereading old Target books and we're going to give you our honest feedback on them. So let's just quickly go through it. Dave, what did you have? So I was allocated Season 9 mm. by you, Mark. Yep. And we had to read a non-Terrence Dix one for this round. So I chose The Curse of Peladon by Brian Hales. Um, at first I was tempted to read The Sea Devils, but I've read that many times. I know that's a good book, so I thought I'd go to one that I hadn't read. Overall, I did enjoy it. It was very interesting. I noted reading The Curse of Peladon just how much the story relies on those really luscious production values of Peladon that actually creates the world, because divorced from that, it does seem a much drier story. It's interesting, the dialogue that Brian Howells uses does differ just enough from the actual televised version that it's a little bit odd. When I read Logopolis last time, uh, Christopher H. Bidmead sort of went in a very different direction with the dialogue and rewrote it for the book. Terence Sticks famously in a lot of his stories goes exactly with the dialogue. This was twisted just a little bit, which was interesting interesting reading. Hales does use the opportunity of the book though to go into a lot of inner monologues and actually get inside the characters a lot more. Uh, one really good example of that is the scene that in the television version where Hepesh and Palinon are reminiscing about when Peladon's father died and the boy became a king. That's all done as an inner monologue from Peladon, just to pass past memory. So that was it. Look, it's very similar to the story. I didn't enjoy it. The one really big thing that came out of it, though, is that in this book, Hepish is just a real prick. He's just angry and quite nasty the whole time, and there's that no sense of that sort of lovable depth that the actor invites in him. So it was a different take on the story, mm. but yeah, it was an interesting, interesting read. Mm. Rob. So I had um, Jerry Davis's Doctor Who and the Cybermen and uh, the copy I've got in my hand which I'm pointing at the microphone is the 1981 edition where there are the moons in the background and there the are the second cover the second cover and there are two Cybermen uh, well standing or floating in space there appears to be fire there one of them much like a Soviet uh, poster of uh, 
uh, dear comrade standing uh, they're pointing towards the future you can just see that there's one point in there so <laughs> I don't know the, Cyber, the Cyberman uh, you know the great equalizers perhaps there's a communist allegory there I don't know <laughs> especially in the sugar anyway um, look I have strong memories of reading this uh, back in the very early 80s uh, I think it was uh, my, my experience was heightened by the uh, the, uh, the internal illustrations, which are relatively rare. Now, looking looking at them at the moment, they are pretty basic, but they are certainly evocative of a certain time and place. Uh, unusually for um, Doctor Who novelizations of this period, uh, Jerry Davis's uh, work or book is 150 pages. Um, we're, we're used to uh, a Terence Dick's quickie, which is usually about 112, 120 pages. So the extra 30 or 40 pages actually affords a bit more um, meat on the bone. Uh, to the story it, it, it struck me reading this that the doctor's involvement while integral I suppose to the to the, to the resolution it is a bit slight because it's only on one setting there's there's not that much running around which sort of gives the doctor and co more to do I suppose there's a lot of gathering of information gathering of evidence uh, samples uh, and, and looking at that but by and large, this is a really good book. I mean, it's not as good as when I read it when I was younger, but, you know, I'm an adult now. The, the prose is muscular. It propels itself forward. The, uh, the the history that's presented to the Cybermen is back to front here. Um, even though they do mention Mondas, it's Talos that these ones come from, and it's Talos that appears to be the homeworld of the Cybermen. Um, there is some very questionable... Uh, Sexism, I suppose you would say. There's a there's a photo of a paragraph I sent to everyone here where Polly. Here we go. I found it. Page 124. <clears throat> this is where Polly actually starts climbing a ladder to the top of the uh, the gravitron. This book was written in the mid 70s, and uh, as we know, the mid 70s was not a high point for. Well, I mean, there was and, women's and liberation and all that, but still. Jerry Davis writes on page 124. Now Polly, who is the only female on the base, only female on the base, and has been, you know making coffee for everyone, etc., etc. I'll just read this bit, this bit out. Polly started climbing up the ladder. The next paragraph begins. While the men's attention was diverted by Polly's miniskirt, the door opened behind them, etc., etc., etc. There are certain other references throughout the book to Polly and her physical attributes. He actually does the same thing in the novelisation for the 10th planet, because when, she, when they first come into the base, she takes her coat off and everything, and I think he actually includes a scene where the men start whistling at her long legs. It's in the televised version, the bit where they first see her through the scope, and he goes, hey, there's somebody out there. Oh, there can't be. It's a woman. It's a woman! <laughs> <laughs> Look, Jerry Davis is clearly a man of his time, and so is this book and the attitudes in it, but otherwise... And great taste. It is really good. Mm. It's a really fun read. The, the, the characters in it are given a bit of extra uh, room to breathe. Uh, Hobson, I think, who's the, the man in charge, yeah. um, he wouldn't survive... In today's modern managerial world, he's a real bastard to a lot of people. He's a hard-charging individual, and it really comes through on this. His art's in the right place, a bit like Jerry Davis's in his attitude towards Polly, but otherwise, if you've got this on your shelf and you haven't written in a long time, I would heartily recommend it. Young Richard. Well, I was given season 23. In order to give you all the finger, uh, I went and pulled out the book from the original season 23, and I chose The Nightmare Fair. Pulled a Kobayashi Maru. <laughs> <laughs> I actually enjoyed it. It's one I certainly had when I was collecting the Target books. I don't really have strong memories of reading it. I really enjoyed it. I mean, the thing people probably... I think the, probably the most oft-commented thing about Nightmare Fair is how they would have done it on TV. Because you have these crab monster that's in the cell next to the Doctor, and then you have the guy who's basically 90% robot, 
um, and you have the pink sort of horse thing. Plus, of course, you've got the video game with the monsters in that. And I, I have this sort of horrible vision of them doing that on a BBC Micro. <laughs> BBC Micro sort of, you know, Warriors of the Deep style. <laughs> could have seen men wearing Pac-Man suits running around the <laughs> on the television. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, I think it would have been a very hard story to realise on screen. So reading a new book form is quite good. And I know Big Finish have done their version of it as well. I actually really enjoyed it. Graham Williams, his writing is quite good and he captures the Sixth Doctor quite well. That that sort of bombastic ebullience, I, I think, that, that really is Colin Baker's portrayal um, really comes across quite well on the page. Perry probably doesn't have... She's, she's a bit of a sort of peril monkey in this a bit where she spends a lot of it running around inside the maze or inside the one of the rides uh, being chased by the guards. But... Uh, Oh, I enjoyed it. The toy maker was quite good. He gives the toy maker a background and some story as to why he's there, and the fact is, spoilers, that uh, he's all alone. So he needs something. He basically is trying to stop himself from going mad and amuse himself. So, and and it has a the doctor is a bit of a callous bastard, I suppose, at the end because he traps the toy maker in a prison of his own devising, in which he can't escape. But I, I must admit, I really enjoyed that. And if you haven't found it, it's a book well worth digging out. It's part of the Missing Episodes collection. I think they also did Mission Magnus. Magnus and they did The Ultimate Evil. That's right. Slightly less well-received, perhaps. Yes. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Ultimate Evil, particularly. Yeah, it's pretty bad, actually. And actually, Mission to Magnus is pretty crap, too. I, I, I liked Mission to Magnus when I first read it at about the age of 10. Look, yeah. I think with another... Yeah, yeah. We're getting off-tangent a bit, but I think with another rewrite, Mission to Magnus... Possibly could have been a better, would have been a better yeah, story. I, I, I think I, the old I think so. was crap. There's potential there for Magnus. Would this but, make you go and listen to the Big Finish audio? I, I have actually listened to the Big Finish audio. It is, it is one I obtained at some point hmm. um, and listened to. It. And I actually found that quite good as well. I got uh, David Bailey in uh, to, to do the Toy Maker. No, look, I enjoyed it. It was a good book. Thank um, you for selecting it for me. We allocated you season 24, Mark. Yes, I'd like to thank you, uh, boys, for that. Now, <laughs> I could have taken the easy option and gone Dragonfire, but I... Pip and Jane. No, I actually went Paradise Towers. So, now let's be honest, I'm not a fan of the TV adaption of, of Paradise Towers. This book rectifies a lot of the issues of the production. Pex is a muscle-bound Arnie-type figure. Mm. Uh, the Resis have uh, fang teeth to reflect their cannibalistic natures. The caretakers are dishevelled, the uniforms, and, and, and the, the whole thing about Paradox Towers being decrepit comes across much better in prose than yep. ever could do on screen. But I'll be honest with you, I found reading the book a bit of a grind. It didn't engage me okay. at all. However, I'm going to make a confession. I did cheat a bit because I was running out of time. So then... From chapter six onwards, I listened to the audio reading while mowing my lawn. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and can I just say, the audio adaption by Bonnie Langford is absolutely brilliant. It just elevates that book from the grind to... Actually, I was looking forward to getting through as much as I can. So I spent the last two or three days with doing various things around the house, with the headphones on, and doing whatever I had to do, listening to Bonnie Langford, okay. doing uh, Scottish impressions for Sylvester McCoy, her uh, interpretation of the chief caretaker is unfortunately like Briars uh, for the most part. I mean, my problem was I was actually in the middle of reading The Dinosaur Invasion, but then I had to switch to Paradise Tower, so I was comparing it unfairly to that. Uh, in terms of Stephen White's uh, pro style... Why were you reading The Dinosaur Invasion? I just had a hankering for it. Okay. I just felt the need I had to go and listen, I read a Malcolm Holt book, and I did. And I was enjoying it, so I'm glad I finished this, because now I can go back 
and read that, although I might just listen to the audio adaption again and read again. Sherry McPherson, you're a layabout. Exactly. So, Mark, the deal was that round three we had to read one that was a Terence book. Yes. So what seasons are you going to allocate us for our next round? So, Dave, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to allocate you a season 15 book. Okay. Rob, I'm going to allocate you a season 5 book. Richard, I'm going to allocate you a season 20 book. And, Mark, we're going to allocate you season 21. Warriors of the Deep. Do you know what? I'm going to do that because, yeah, I think Warriors of the Deep would be a good one. Actually, on that score, I finally picked up a a copy of Beneath the Surface. uh, Oh, did you? The trilogy box set. Have you watched it yet? I just got it uh, two days ago, so there's a definite no. But I'm looking forward to watching that, actually. There's a good documentary on the Solarians DVD. Oh, okay. Very good. good So I can basically read... Ark of Infinity or Snake Dance. For those uh, not uh, able to hear uh, Richard, he said Ark of Infinity or Snake Dance. And five doctors. doctors. And five doctors. You complete bastard. He's he's just expressed his true feelings and is now stalking back to the couch. With his middle digit extended. Well, that's easy. I've I've got got the entire season to pick from for 15, so I'll find something. Okay, um, before we go, uh, before we go, I'd like to give a podcast plug. We usually don't do this, but we will give one out to the guys from New to Who, and the hosts are Stephen, Colin, and Dan, who take all the confusion out of my fans' minds uh, who haven't seen the classic series and don't know where to start. So they just released their Terror of the Zygons podcast. It's quite good, isn't it, Dave? Yeah, I've listened to it, and it's a really pleasant yeah. and enjoyable uh, listen. They're not shackled by any sort of format or rules. They just... They just chat, kind of like you guys. Yeah, it's like 42 to Doomsday, but good, really. Uh, <laughs> and focus on one story. And focus on one story. However, I'd like to offer the boys a bit of a challenge. I know they're only looking at four-part stories, so this is either going to make or break them. I want them to tackle very early on in their run either The Underworld, Twin Dilemma, Time and the Rani, or Episodes 1, 4, 5, and 6 of The Monster of Paladon, and then we'll see how your podcast goes. I thought you were their friend. Why not episodes two and three of Monster of Paladin? I've saved them. (laughs) (laughs) So so you're lulling them into the false sense of security that it may get better when the Ice Warriors turn up, when in reality... No, it doesn't. doesn't. (laughs) Exactly. So this is is either going to make them uh, stronger or break them. So we'll see how we go. I'd actually be interested if they did Twin Dilemma, given the kicking we just gave it... (laughs) About what, probably two the hours. Kicking, the kicking you just gave oh, them. Oh, <laughs> no, no, so, no, 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 oh, no. So no, you're no. going to tell me that this is one of your favourites now? I are re- you? I, no, I'm still steadfast in my belief that it's better than Death in Heaven. Of course it is. Everything is. Yes, gonorrhea, syphilis, <laughs> are all better than Death in Heaven. And Mark, if you edit that out, I'll break your legs. So <laughs> I was going to say, give no. it. Well, you're editing this one anyway, Rob, so I don't really care what you do. Given the kicking I clearly gave <laughs> Twin Dilemma, I would like to see if they found any redeeming features. Before we leave, Mark is uh, heading home to uh, Bonnie Wales to, no doubt, chew on a leak, and he will be away for a couple of episodes. So it'll going be, to go to Clan Clubber. So it'll be me, uh, myself and uh, Richard for one episode, and uh, myself and Dave for another episode, so stay tuned for those. Yep. So until we reconvene, I've been Rob... I've been Dave. I've been Richard. And I've been the pretty one with very nice hair. Keep punching! 
you've just listened to another episode of 42 to Doomsday, the podcast that loves talking about Doctor Who. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Please drop us a line at 42 to Doomsday at gmail.com. We can be reached at facebook.com forward slash 42 to Doomsday. If brevity is your game, we can be found on Twitter at 42 to Doomsday. Please check out our blog, 42 to Doomsday.wordpress.com, where Mark and I occasionally have something interesting to say. Aside from iTunes, you can listen to us via Stitcher and Player FM. If you enjoyed listening to us, leave a review on iTunes. As always, thank you for listening. Have a great week. We'll speak with you again soon. Again, I should start charging you, Blokes, for using yeah, that. Where, where did that actually come from? He sent an email. Under a I heard it in the 90s, though. Yeah. yeah.